Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm the host for our this episode today. Our guest is Dr. Droge Droge, author of Chocolate Surrealism, Music, Movement, Memory, and History in the Circum-Caribbean, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2016. In Chocolate Surrealism, Droge Droge highlights connections among the production, performance, and reception of popular music at critical historical junctures in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Droge illuminates musics of the Circum-Caribbean as culturally and conceptually integrated within the larger history of the region. Droge examines the deep interrelations between music, movement, memory, and history in the African diaspora. He finds the music both a theoretical anchor and a mode of expression and representation of Black identities and political cultures. Music and performance offer ways for the author to re-theorize intersections of race, nationalism, and musical practice and geopolitical connections. Further, music allows Roge a reassessment of the development of the modern world system in the context of local popular responses to the global age. The book analyzes different styles, times, and politics to render a brief history of Black Atlantic sound. A little bit more about our guest, Dr. Droge Droge is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. So welcome, Dr. Droge. Thank you. Glad to have you. Um, So before we dive into the book, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Um, well, I, I like to work on music. I actually like to play music. If I would have gotten a recording contract, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But yeah, no. so instead of being a professional musician, I became a professional academic. Um, but music is still my key sort of theoretical and intellectual sort of interest as a way of doing history. Um, so um, I guess I'm, I'm originally from Kansas City, Missouri. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but there's a guy named Charlie Parker from there too. Um, but um, um, but uh, my family is, uh, my father's from Kenya and my mother is from rural Louisiana. So I'm an actual African-American. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that also really very much informed my childhood and informed my kind of musical interests. My father had tons of 45s from all over Africa that I used to listen to as a kid. My mom had all kinds of LPs and like jazz and R&B and soul. And essentially started off, you know, just pilfering my parents' record collection. And that just sort of developed into a lifelong passion. Very cool. And like as a musician, what do you do? Um, I frustratedly play some bass. Um, I've been really getting into bongos and percussion recently, but now I'm primarily a, a bass player. Well, in quotes. Very cool. That's awesome. What do you like to play, I guess, on bass? 
Um, everything I kind of talk about in the book. I, I mean, the book is really, really about my record collection, which is also about like my kind of just kind of musical taste. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm a frustrated jazz musician, but so I end up playing like a lot of funk. <laughs> so I could, but I, I love to play uh, that you know, is awesome. styles and rhythms and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, pretty much um, from James Jamerson to Jaco Pastorius, those are like kind of my my two twin poles of sort of thinking about bass. Really cool, and I think that adds a whole other layer of like depth to the book. You know that I think our leader, readers will pick up on. You know, um, as they go through your text. And, you know, going a little bit more into your, like, background as well, this book is based on your dissertation, correct? Um, And so what was this process of turning a dissertation into a book like? (laughs) I mean, it's actually kind of based on my senior thesis when I was an undergraduate. I wasn't supposed to talk about that in the the text itself, but that's really kind of where it came from because I I went to... um, UC Santa Cruz as an undergraduate, and I had like this really fantastic committee there. A guy named David Anthony, who was a tremendous historian. Uh, his recent book on Max Jorgen just came out a year or two ago, but he's also a hell of a saxophone player. And he had a handwritten notation of John Coltrane's Giant Steps um, solo on his door. So I just like knocked on this guy's, I was wandering the halls in there and I just knocked on this guy's door and I was like, you know, who are you? And this, this giant, you know, like dude answers the door and we sat down and started talking and he kind of really helped me out by kind of figuring out other people that I could talk to about this. So like um, this guy named Herman Gray, who was a fantastic kind of sociologist, um, and also a wonderful poet, uh, English teacher named uh, Nathaniel Mackey, um, who's still still writing like wonderful stuff. And then there was uh, the, the chair of all this when I was an undergraduate was this woman named Angela Davis, who um, probably should go without <laughs> introduction, but she was one of the people who really encouraged me to like, you know, like we can really deal with the music and take the music really seriously, not just, you know, fun stuff to dance to, and look, but to you know, start digging into the history, start digging into the culture and start, you know, like really listening to the to the sounds. So this all started off my way kind of back in the day. But then I was very much focused on African American music in the United States. And then my ears kind of just started evolving because I took a long time off between um undergraduate and graduate school and most of that time I spent working in record stores and so I was literally like kind of living in record stores and was kind of collecting and pulling all this music together and I realized like oh there's a much wider world and this Caribbean is you know I'm going through the Caribbean basically I'm trying to work my way back to Africa so like the next project I want to do is uh you know so started in the American South went further south and now I'm going to try to go back across so one of these days when I get this other project to go. Man, it sounds like you've been on like an ongoing journey in terms of all this mentorship and support you've had with, you know, this project that we're talking about today. And then you're continuing that journey geographically from a scholarly point as well, which is really cool. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your future work um, as you continue going more towards the Africa direction, quite literally in this case too. Um, and it's really interesting to hear, like, as you've, you know, developed as a scholar, how much this project has, it sounds like it's meant a lot to you back from those early days to present, you know? 
oh, I'm just I'm literally writing about my record collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That easy, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so going more to like a very obvious question to kind of pivot towards the book itself now, starting with the title, right? Um, can you explain to our listeners what the phrase, like the first part of the title, chocolate surrealism means? Oh, I borrowed that. And borrowed it. And I sampled it from a, a fantastic band in the Bay Area called the Brown Fellinis, and it was the title of an EP they put out. I want to say in like '91 or '92. They're just a great band and jazz, hip hop, funk, all kinds of all kinds of different stuff, right? You know. And they had this one track that really got me kind of thinking. It's called Herodotus on the Nile, and so that just kind of inspired me as I was kind of writing and thinking, you know. And so the title would just kind of fit with what I was trying to do because it is really about looking. It's about kind of pastiche. It's about combinations. I mean, this is why the book is kind of unreadable because um, <laughs> I was trying to, you know, kind of do it in this way. Um, that was both not really avant-garde, but kind of trying to blend all these interests together in ways that didn't necessarily sort of or logically kind of fit. But the through line is the groove, right? You know, so and that's where the title came from. It's these guys who I, who I believe are still playing around in some incarnations in the Bay Area. So. But, that's really cool. Um, and I think that, you know, centers this music, you know, in that way as well. It's definitely like a groove that you can pick up on, you know, over the course of the book. And, you know, it was like a really interesting journey, like going through the text um, in that way. And I definitely see what you're talking about in terms of there's just so much to look at in these scenes, um, which is really cool. And then going on to like kind of terms, key terms for this book, um, you know, you mentioned a couple of things throughout the book, polyrhythm and root work, for instance. Um, So can you explain those ideas to our listeners and how you develop them throughout the book? And also, are there other key ideas that you think someone would need to understand going into this text? Mm. I mean, I don't think there's other key. I mean, well, yeah, I guess let me, let me just start with the first part of that. Um, polyrhythm, obviously, you know, like multiple rhythms at once to me is a very useful um, way of conceptualizing you know, music in the African diaspora, right? You know, so we do have multiple rhythms. I mean, if you just want to even stick with the Caribbean, right? You know, you got some rhythms going on in Cuba. You got some rhythms going on in Trinidad. You got some rhythms going on in Puerto Rico, right? And they're all happening at once, right? You know, so just, you know, if we want to just kind of think about that, but also just the idea of musicians interacting together around multiple meters is also a very useful and I think kind of a, a rich metaphor for thinking about history and thinking about you know, the individual in history and the individual in society and that kind of thing. You know, finding your groove, finding your rhythm is not just crucial for musical performance it's actually pretty critical for you know just life in general right you know, so the, the music is the metaphor and in, in, in that kind of sense right um, but that's where like uh, the the polyrhythmic kind of idea comes from but then the root work right then would take us back to sort of uh, sort of african kind of herbal traditions right you know and the idea of using roots and herbs in the natural world in the natural environment not simply for um, survival, but also the importance of reworking in terms of religious customs and ceremonies, and further, right, the using of 
roots and herbs and stuff to, you know, poison one's masters, which was a big problem during the, the era of slavery, particularly in the Caribbean, right? So root working has these multiple sorts of meanings. And it also kind of draws on the practice of music itself, right? You know, we're always kind of learning from the masters. We're always doing the root work as musicians, like right? going back and listening and figuring out how to play different stuff. Is it's a, it's, a, it's a historical kind of thing, right? You know, so that's the idea of root working. It's a very active thing, but also a historical kind of orientation, right? You know, how, how does one learn how to play? Right? How does one learn how to perform? There's a wonderful phrase um, by my, my one of my great mentors is Stephen Feld, and uh, in his book Music Grooves, he has this wonderful phrase. You know, he's just like you know, it feels good to know how to feel good, right? You know, and that's about that kind of participatory framework, right? You know, and that's about working, working those roots, right? You know, we all know like when that good part of the song comes around, and you know, that's when you know you, you just got to move to it, right? And so, but that's about root work, right? You know, that's about digging in. And having that kind of grounding, right? So there's a necessarily historical component to the kind of performative aspects of music. And that's what I was really kind of trying to get at and trying to get with. Cool. Thank you for breaking that down for them. I thought that was, again, really creative take on unifying so much subject matter um, of the text amongst, you know, other ideas, of course, too. But I thought those were interesting uh, takes on that um and still sticking with kind of like introductory stuff there was a sentence in the actual introduction that kind of struck me quote the power of black music lies in its feelingful representation of these transformations of african peoples into black folks so can you talk more about that statement i mean in, in many ways like this particular book and, and a lot of the stuff I write, I'm just writing kind of footnotes to um, Mary Baraka's Blues People, which is one of the finest books on African-American music in the United States to ever be written, right? You know, and just the way in which, you know, he kind of breaks it down with these ideas of like the changing saying, right? You know, the way in which the music evolves and changes, you know, and, and he has a wonderful line that's so um, clear um you know he says you know the music changes because the musicians change right you know and then it's, it's tautological but it's so obvious but it also bears repeating and, and bears meditating on right you know so this is kind of what one of the real kind of animating things behind it is but it's also um thinking about as i said before right you know like robert plant armstrong and like stephen feld these notions of effectivity affectivity right you know and how, what is it about this stuff that just, you know, like, what would make something good? And um, and it's about that feelingfulness, right? It's about that ability to represent the ineffable, like in some sort of way. It's like, what, how does music kind of just capture the mood, essentially, right? You know, and that's kind of uh, what I want us to think about. But more importantly, right, how music is such a sort of central kind of cultural glue for these kind of communities in struggle, right? You know, emerging from slavery and this, you know, sort of horrific history of the Atlantic slave trade and, you know, the continued ongoing oppression, discrimination, discrimination, you know, racism, poverty, all these kinds of things, right? You know, and music, right, becomes not just a way for black people to come together, but also to simply survive, right? It becomes a very important tool uh, with uh, what the wonderful poet in Tezaki Shange called, uh, you know, survival motions, right? This is how we move because we have to, but we also groove at the same time, right? You know, 
Yeah. If you can dance to your oppression, you know, black people have mastered that. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm trying to talk about. Um, just in terms of thinking about the diaspora and thinking about these different kinds of musical sorts of traditions, right? Yeah. Um, and so people like um, Sam Floyd, right, the power of black music, as I said, um, Stephen Feld, right, his music grooves, it's it's kind of all about, right, this, the effectiveness and effectiveness, right, of music and musical creation, both in terms of, you know, sort of existential questions, but also in terms of simply keeping communities together, sane and able to survive, to put up with, you know, <laughs> be able to face the white day, basically, <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that definitely came through in the different case studies that you kind of give us, you know, from chapter to chapter, um, for sure. So, um, again, there's a lot of scope to the book, but, if you know, you can see these kind of through lines. You can see the narrative, you know, in that way. Um, and then going to sort of the core argument of the book, you state that, quote, the thesis is that a critical account of the historical development of the Afro-diasporic musical tradition must be represented as one of resistance, accommodation, creolization, and transculturation, as reflected in these four cases of stylistic evolution, end quote. So how do these four case studies, or in our words, the four chapters that follow do this you were kind of talking about this a little bit but well i mean for the the case studies i chose i try to actually follow the you know kind of it, it creates a historical kind of uh chronology even though we're looking at different places at different times right um so it's not exactly a sort of i'm not you know tracing the entire history of calypso right you know from, from the very beginning up to the mighty sparrow or anything like that but it's it's that really would be a lot <laughs> yeah exactly right? it's really about just looking like let's just take a little snapshot of these kind of particular moments usually about a decade a little more or less for each kind of chapter and let's just sort of look at um what's going on you know and, and then there's just i mean there's obviously like so much more right you know and, and so many more musics that i don't even address or you know, or just kind of talk about in passing right you know but the real um for me the real story is kind of talking about you know music it's a sort of low intensity warfare music is another register of working class struggles right you know labor struggles anti-colonial struggles anti-racist struggles all these sorts of things right so taking not just the musical sounds seriously you know not, not just the groove seriously but also what the music, music saying something too Right, you know, even at its most sort of anodyne or you know, its most kind of abstract, right? It's still kind of speaking um, about something, and so it's like, well, you know, if we listen closely, we can, you know, we can we can hear a lot more than than just a, you know a nice groove. It just helps, you know, like history you can dance to. That's pretty cool. So that's kind of the idea, right? You know? And so each of the kind of case studies, right, is just you know different danceable moments and you know, important moments in the larger history of the Caribbean and the, the, the Black Atlantic, but also very important moments stylistically in terms of the evolution of this music, the evolution of this kind of Atlantic world sound. So that's where that's at. Cool. Thank you for kind of summarizing that. I think that sets the stage really well for kind of as we continue going more into the actual chapters um, for our listeners. So gives it's always good to give some context so shifting to the actual first chapter you know like you talked about you get into a specific time period of trinidadian calypso 
stating, quote, the history of Calypso reveals the continuous dialogues, debates, conflicts, and conversations that shaped the music as Carnival became a national festival and Calypso a national music. Race and class conflict, gender roles, poverty and hardship, and the joys and pains of Trinidadian life all found expression in and were mediated by the form, end quote. So for our listeners, can you tell them what was going on in Trinidad at this time that manifested in this music? Well, I mean, when we're looking at uh, not just Trinidad, but the Caribbean in general at this kind of period, the interwar period is a particular kind of fertile moment for um, a lot of labor struggles, but also a lot of kind of political movements and political organizations, right? You know, so this is the same moment when, say, something someone like Marcus Garvey is, you know, creating this massive international organization, the United Negro Improvement Association, right? With all these Caribbean peoples, both you know, he's headquartered in New York, of course, but you know there's all these chapters of the UNI, you know, throughout the United States, but also throughout the Caribbean and, and even on the African kind of continent, right? So Calypso is right in the midst of all this stuff. Another thing that's happening that's very important in Trinidad, in particular, is the discovery of these huge oil fields, right? You know, and so all of this is also happening at the same time that the United States is kind of coming in. <clears throat> building uh, bases, but also, you know, United States workers, private companies are coming in and, you know, making uh, making mint off of this, these new oil fields. And when they're at the oil fields are going to lead to like the tin pan and all that kind of stuff like later on, but that I don't get into. But uh, so the, the sort of overlapping of the kind of labor struggles and anti-colonial struggles in the Caribbean in general, right, you know, but also on the African continent and, you know, throughout the so-called third world, this particular time period, really find this kind of airing in the Calypso. I mean, like one of the most famous ones, right, you know, um, the Lord Invaders, uh, rum and Coca-Cola, right, you know. And chorus, right? Working for the Yankee dollar. <laughs> you know, he's talking about the way in which, right, the new imperialism is no longer the British that are the problem, right? You know, it's these, you know, it's the giant with the seven league boots up north. And that's becoming, you know, like the real kind of key player in the Caribbean Sea that they're now talking about is the American Mediterranean. And so the Calypso is kind of talking about all this is going on. We're trying to get free from the British, but at the same time, we know we're trying, you know, we're being rapidly pulled into this American orbit, this U.S. orbit, right, you know. And so it really is about labor and it's about anti-colonialism, but also it's about everyday life, right? So the gender politics of Trinidad, you know, like, like all of this, you find this kind of important expression in these calypsos, often quite fucked up. I mean, often quite, you know, um, not PC, but, you know, it is airing, you know, like, um, you know, very much uh, what's ha- what's happening, right? You know, as, as I forget who was it who said, you know, the calypsos, it's the poor man's newspaper, right? You know, this is how, like, a lot of events got covered, but it's also a way of just sort of talking about, like, everyday life in this, in this crazy world that was Trinidad at that moment. I don't know if I answered your question or if I just kind of... No, I think it did. I appreciated how you kind of, again, spoke to kind of the larger, you know, issues that were going on in the Caribbean at large with that as well. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that you're using this music, you know, as a historical source to, you know, especially when you compared it, like that quote to the newspaper, I thought that was an interesting, it's all like music is sort of a text in that way, or music is sort of a, 
primary source. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that is my primary source, right? It is music and recording. And, and uh, it's a great book. I think it's a John Shepard, right? Music is social text, you know? And like, that's kind of like what we're, what I'm trying to think about. Like, yeah, like, like what, what can the music tell us? You know, like, of course we can dance to it, but you know, it's, it's well, there's also politics and history at a, at a different register. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you were working on this book, what were some of the like pros and cons maybe of using those kind of sources for a historical text? Like, you know, what makes music a different type of primary source than, say, an actual newspaper, obviously? Well, I mean, like when I was doing it, I was actually going through actual newspapers, like in archives in Trinidad and going to Cuba and places like that and such, right? You know, and um, all incredibly informative, right? You know, but that's a that's only for or at least for me that's only for setting the scene right you know that's only for like, like let's try to kind of historically you know for me conceptually like kind of recreate the space in which this sonic event sonic events are kind of happening right you know like what are the musicians talking about on the day-to-day when they're not on the bandstand you know like are they getting to and from work kind of stuff so using that kind of stuff is uh important for you know laying the foundation for the for the his for the history I'm trying to tell with the music, but at the end of the day, right? You know, it's I'm like you know, just listen to the music. Yeah. You know, I'd rather my rather than having a book, I'd rather just have like a, a hot like you know kind of greatest hit CD. So, you know, sell that instead of you know a bunch of words about it. <laughs> you know, the famous quote, right? You know, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. But at the same time, right, dancing is about architecture, right? You know, it's about bodies and space and motion and time and how we orient, right? You know, but at the same time, right, you know, how do you really, like, write about music? Like, shut up and listen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is an interesting challenge, for sure. No, it was interesting to hear. Um, and then going on to chapter two, you know, we go on to... The Cuban music's case study, you conclude that, quote, the music of Cuba reveals the layers of the transculturative matrix of the Circum-Caribbean and historical development of African peoples in the New World. The transformation of ethnicity into race is demonstrated in the development of clave consciousness, both musically and philosophically, and the distinctively Cuban approach to musicking. Can you talk more about that? Well, I mean, clave, like, uh, I mean, you know, just as, as a basic sort of simple, like, kind of two, three rhythm, um, or three, two, depending upon which way you play it and start it, uh, to me, uh, really encapsulates, right, it's because it's kind of a, a sort of compromise between sort of African and European aesthetic approaches, right, you know, so you get that kind of triplet feel within a sort of four meter or four beat kind of measure, right? So the clave symbolically and, you know, sonically, right, represents this kind of coming together of the so-called new world, right? You know, that only comes together from this history of slavery, from this history of, you know, European colonialism, genocide, all, you know, all that fun stuff. But the clave, like, you know, musically and symbolically, right, really kind of embodies that and depending upon which way you start on the three or on the two, right? But I mean, but, but the, for me, like the whole idea, like really comes from, you know, like the great historian, Cuban historian, Fernando Ortiz, right, in his book Cuban Counterpoint, which conceptually um, brings brings that all together. And for him, it's you know coffee and sugar, right? You know, for me, it's you know three and two, 
but the same kind of the same idea, right? You know, it's so indebted to to his work and and uh, Morin Hill Friday Niles, right? You know, his work on on <clears throat> the sugar plantations, right? You know, and these kinds of things, and and that's really what makes that Cuban groove so infectious. Is that you know that nice nice driving repetitive rhythm, but you never really kind of get lost. Just because it kind of keeps on going. I mean, it's as crazy as keeping percussionists get and everything else is going on because they're just like, like nutty, nutty music makers. But that clave, like it anchors, it anchors the whole thing, and, and arguably it anchors almost all of the music of the Caribbean. Right? You know, you can count clave to pretty much anything on any of those islands, right? Even when it's not being played, right? It's being played. You know, so that's that's what I, I was trying to get at. Like, how do we? Um, Think about you know it's, it's, it's this fundamental question like what holds all this black music together right the Trinidadians are not Cubans the Cubans aren't Puerto Ricans the Puerto Ricans you know aren't you know from Mobile Alabama right you know but there is a sonic kind of unity so clave becomes a, a, a for me a way of kind of thinking through that you know both metaphorically but also quite literally like in terms of thinking about how those rhythms are coming together right you know. And if you can't keep clave, right, you know, you're not playing. You, know, you get it all cruzado, right, you know, you're crossing things and, you know, and then everybody starts laughing at you, you know. So it's not only um, a conceptual anchor, but it's also like, you know, if you can't do that, you really can't sit in at the jam session. So, you know, it's about, it's, you know, back to that idea, you know, it, it feels good to know how to feel good. And if you can't, you can't keep time. Also, it sounds like you've had, personal experience with this oh absolutely yeah no, I've, I've been i've been laughed at <laughs> you know you know uh, no, like uh, my, my bongo playing is not fantastic but you know i, I it should never give up you know? <laughs> yeah. i mean because it because it is like really or these like kind of larger ensembles right you know like if you're like over here and everyone else is over there you know it, it really stands out it's a little embarrassing for everybody right it's like if you can't dance, you shouldn't be in the middle of the dance floor. It's that kind of thing. But the the whole thing about it is right. You know, back to the kind of clave consciousness is the idea that it's actually kind of imprinted in people. Right? You know, it's it's not about like you don't have to actually. Now I'm playing clave. Right? You know, you just start grooving. Right? And that's what you get. Like you know, like I mean seriously, like I'm like walking around Cuba like. Uh, uh, you can see like little kids just, you know, just beating it out, you know, and it's just like from that early age, right? You know, that's just, that's just how time works. And that's a very important and very awesome kind of thing. Right? That's what, that's where you begin. Right? That's how you start to, you know, sort of, that's your temporal measurement. You know, you get a, a potentially exciting life ahead of you. Right? Far more exciting than 4-4, four, four, you know. <laughs> common time nope <laughs> that's really cool i mean really interesting to kind of hear uh how it is so much into people's consciousness in that way like that's really fascinating um and then going on to the third chapter slash case study um entitled quote they're all making and unmaking of the third world 1955 to 1965 you wrap everything up in this chapter with this quote the confluence of cold war geopolitical and domestic developments decolonization the invention of the third world and civil rights military coupled with a black internationalism 
Black internationalist renaissance was counterpointed and elaborated in Black cultural practices and creative expressions. This period of musical creativity made audible and and visible oppositional aesthetic collectivities, articulated a critical musical vocabulary of resistance, and embodied an alternative archive of the historiography of decolonization at home and abroad in sonic iconicities and allegorical forms, end quote. So quite a punch of a conclusion there. Um, so can you talk more about, again, going back to mu- music as the source, what are some examples during this time of Black musical expressions that were, you know, reflecting all this? Well, I mean, like, uh, for, for me, like, how I first really started thinking about this was the music of Randy Weston, you know, and uh, I just started really getting deep into uh, what Randy Weston was doing, and still still is doing, um, and particularly his, his record, Uluru Africa. And that was also one of these things that, where you had this, like, amazing, just huge band of all these incredible, incredible musicians, but also thinking about what he was trying to say at that particular moment in the 1960s. And that led me kind of down this whole rabbit hole and back to, you know, Max Roach's album that comes out a little bit before that, right? You know, um, The Freedom Now, right? You know, where he has the, um, the wonderful... Uh, album cover right with the uh the cats you know at the sit-in you know at the lunch counter right you know and and it's just this incredibly powerful powerful music with abby lincoln like doing this incredible work right you know so that just really kind of got me thinking about this music in this kind of cold war period which is also the period of the civil rights movement right and the beginnings of you know decolonization on the continent on the african continent so all the music is responding to all these things right you know and kind of talking about all these things. So one of the reasons why like the Western was key is because he does bring musicians from all over the diaspora to play together on on that particular thing. And it does start kind of creating this kind of notion. Like it, it seems so quaint and antiquated now, but there was a moment when like the idea of the third world was actually like a really kind of potent and important kind of political idea for people of color across the, you know, not just the United States or the Caribbean, but around the world, right? So, you know, the Bandung Conference is something that I, I try to kind of center in this story because that was a, a massive thing, you know, and that was widely covered in the in the Black press in the United States. And people were really kind of talking about that as this kind of idea, right? You know, I mean, and shortly thereafter, right, we're going to see the whole sort of uh, the war in Vietnam, first beginning with France, right, you know, and then you know, obviously the United States. But that was also being seen as like, wow, you know, like that's, you know, like they kick the shit out of the French. So, you know, people are getting their heads in a different kind of way. And that's the whole idea of, you know, like the idea of the third world, not as a pejorative sense, but as an actual, like, really awesome sense of, like, is a new day in Babylon. Like, if we can get, you know, this kind of anti-colonial, anti-racist, you know, new political movement going, the whole non-aligned movement, we don't have to have a white person in charge, be it Russia or the United States. Let's kind of do our own thing. And the musicians were really kind of tapping into that, both in terms of what they would say about the music they were making, but also in terms of the kind of collaborations, like the musicians they were getting to play, they were trying to, you know, literally um, make that a reality, you know, if only in the studio, you know, but that's how we got we to start somewhere, right? Yeah, and as you were, you know, talking a little bit, it made me think about kind of what's going on, like in the present moment, how are you seeing, you know, now musical expressions that you know reflect the current like anti-racist you know forms of resistance 
you know, Black Lives Matter kind of stuff. What do you see going on in these regions at the moment? I mean, in terms of like contemporary music, not a lot. It's actually quite depressing. I mean, for me, like personally, like I, I just don't, uh, I, I don't see a whole lot of, um, I mean, not to take away from, I mean, there's terms, tons of, you know, fabulous, you know, fantastic, talented performers, musicians, vocalists, songwriters, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, and, and I think it's also reflective of the larger kind of political moment where, um, you know, there, there isn't a sort of centralized civil rights movement. I mean, there's kind of Black Lives Matter, but that's, you know, kind of a, loose, a looser kind of coalition, but there isn't really um, a, a sort of large movement culture, right, to really kind of tap into. And there really aren't people, you know, like there's no civil rights anthems coming out here, you know, I mean, maybe Beyonce's formation or something like that. <laughs> you know? But, you know, beyond those kind of gestures, there really isn't a... a, a there isn't a movement as such to attach itself to, right? And there isn't music, you know, there's no soundtrack for what's happening right now unless it's like, you know, The weekend or something, you know? Like, you know, I don't really follow like contemporary music, so I don't really know. After about 1975, my ears kind of drop off. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff I really don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I was just like kind of thinking about that. Like, you know, again, it's another source of the historical moment. And it'll be interesting to see if there are such responses um, or I mean, more I mean, responses, rather. I mean, I think the music's always going to have some sort of response. Or will it form some sort of coherent political platform at this point? Most likely not. Um, but there's always going to be, you know, my music is always going to be speaking to the times, right? You know, it's just. You know, right now it's just Cardi B who's speaking to the time, you know, which, you know, for, for good or ill, you know, that's that's just where we're at. But like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Interesting. Um, going back in time now. So going to the last chapter, um, we have shifted to salsa. Um, for this chapter, you explained that, quote, the production of salsa must be located in the historical context of New York in the 1960s and early 1970s, and we must understand that salsa, as praxis and process, was pan-Latino and Afro-Caribbean, but decidedly New Yorican, so end quote. And that salsa, quote, was the sound of the New Yorican youth, the voice of the people who, in the midst of New York City hardship, were still able to find and create moments of freedom that would resonate throughout the Circum-Caribbean and the African diaspora, end quote. So can you talk about this sort of place of salsa and the significance of salsa to these communities at this, these different intersections, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what, what I should say first is we have to, I mean, Johnny Pacheco just passed away and he's absolutely central to the story of this, the rise of salsa and in particular the rise of this record company called Fania. So um, may, may he rest in peace. Um, but what one of the things that... Um, that really got me going on this one was, uh, and this is where I kind of stole the title from, was this album called, uh, you know, by a group called Grupo Folklorico. Um, <clears throat> and it was kind of, the album was called Concepts in Unity, and then Grupo Folklorico y Experimental, you know, De Nuevo Yorkino. And, um, and it had this, this kind of who's who of like salsa players, largely spearheaded by um, and 
Bundy and Jerry Gonzalez, the Gonzalez brothers, but you know, Oscar Hernandez, like all, all kinds of people on this, right? You know, and the thing that was cool about this when I discovered it, you know, because I was into this, I was like, what is this Latin sound stuff? You know, I knew my Santana and all that, but I was like, this is this is something different. And uh, I went to this concert, and these cats were playing, you know, like all these like kind of jazz standards, Miles Davis tunes and Monk tunes, but they had like conga going, right? Yeah, they had that clave consciousness going. I was like, this is slamming. Then I found this concept in Unity record, right? You know, and the thing that was really cool about this is not only was it a who's who, on the back, they gave kind of short biographies of all the musicians, like all the different bands they played in. So that became like really my Bible. Because um, at that point, you know, my Spanish was horrible. I had no idea what I was looking for. But now I just go to the record store. I was like, I know that guy, I know that guy, I know that guy. So I just start buying records. And uh, but but the thing the thing that uh, about that that really kind of brought me together, brought it together in my head, is that I was starting to listen more and more to it. Was just kind of thinking about the history of New York, right? You know, where are these cats living, right? You know, and then. And they're not in Westchester, right? You know, so like, and who are they kind of interacting with and how you can hear these kind of influences. So like the whole history of Lulu, right? You know, which is this irony, and I'm sorry, this uh, kind of a side, sidebar here. Um, the Boogaloo Boys and this kind of crazy right wing stuff. I'm just like, do they not realize what Boogaloo actually like was? Because like, why did they want to kind of appropriate, you know, this kind of black and latino like kind of music form for their you know white racial project and it's just like so you know sorry the side note on that one but uh <laughs> I, th- I just think it's kind of hilarious but, i mean you know funny yeah in, in a tragic sense as we saw at the capitol but anyway um it was it was like a just uh, this music right you know just kind of really capturing this kind of particular moment drawing on the african-american traditions very much so but also really speaking to this identity of these you know caribbean peoples in new york city right you know you're, you're a long way from you know <clears throat> from havana or you know from, from san juan and these kind of things right you know, and make and how they're making sense out of that sound right you know stuck in these ghettos next to these black people who, you know from the deep south from alabama you know from louisiana right? you know and from these kind of different places and how these people are all making sense out of this new reality and 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 the cold, you know, <laughs> you know, making sense out of like what, what it's like uh, up up that way, right? You know, and so this this salsa stuff, right? You know, much like you know, hip hop kind of coming out of the same neighborhood just about twenty years later, right? You know, it's really speaking to that speaking to that new identity, that new reality of those people, right? You know? And obviously, uh, Fania Records in particular is absolutely central to not only recording music but kind of creating that sense of identity um but thank you for joining us uh today on new books and music um i wanted to ask you what projects are you working on these days um well like i like i might have mentioned i'm trying to get back to africa like i'm you know the caribbean like my like my undergraduate stuff started in like the and uh mainly the uh, American South and African-American musics. And then, you know, I did this like kind of little Caribbean thing. And eventually I'm going to, you know, actually get my way back to the continent because I really want to do some stuff on like high life in particular and looking at uh, African music in the 50s and 60s and the rise of the recording industry there, you know, starting in the 30s and moving on. But I'm actually currently working on a book on like Hegel and Karl Marx, so a little bit different. 
sounds like all kinds of fun and exciting stuff yeah, coming yeah. up. <laughs> Dead white guys. <laughs> oh yeah, the never-ending trail of them. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. But I will look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Appreciate it. And listeners, we have to thank you as well. We couldn't do this without you. Um, just as a recap, this is the end of an interview with Dr. Jiroge Jiroge, author of Chocolate Surrealism, Music, Movement, Memory, and History in the Circum-Caribbean, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2016. This is Emily Allen, and please join me next time here on New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>